Uh, well, we are back in the life of David, uh, a series uh, about an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king this morning in 1 Samuel 18 to 19 that was just read. Now, you'll remember that like Abraham, David is a, a kind of a big deal in the Bible. Uh, he is a guy who has done great things. Uh, he is someone who represents one of the major characters of the Bible. Uh, David is the king after God's own heart, whom God anointed with his spirit. He is the Messiah or Christ, meaning the anointed one who prepared the way for a greater Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, just to catch you up to speed so far, we've seen that in 1 Samuel 16, uh, that was where God took his spirit from Saul and gave it to David. Uh, And then in 1 Samuel 17, David defeated Goliath in a winner-take-all fight to the death against the Philistines. Now, much to do was made, you'll remember as we looked at David and Goliath, about his shield-bearer that walked before Goliath. We'll see today, though, that David really understood himself as not needing the armor of Saul. He did not need his sword. He did not need his armor. He did not need his shield because he understood himself to have a greater shield, a shield that we see evident here today. See, he understood that God himself was his shield. Now, the main point of 1 Samuel 18 to 19 is subtle as you read through the text. We don't find the verse that says this is the main point of the text. It is a subtle main point. And I'm guessing that as you listen to Rob and he read this text, there were many points that struck you as almost comedic and funny due to the rich irony. Did you notice that? All kinds of little places where it seemed that the opposite thing that was expected actually happened. Well, Saul's pursuit of David really reminds me of a number of things. I'm reminded of a a poem by Robert Burns, uh, one where he finds a a mouse in a field, and he's looking on the field, on this mouse in the field, and he's very, he's very pessimistic and and dour in his view of the life of this mouse. And he, he talks about just how everything just doesn't seem to really work out for him until he comes to this last line where he says, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. In other words, we we plan and we plan for the future, and yet what we find is so often, in the end, it turns out the opposite of the way that we planned. And maybe you feel that way about your life today, that does not turn out the way that you expected. Or or maybe you feel like life is more characterized day by day by Murphy's Law. Y'all know Murphy's Law? Whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. Uh, Most of you probably live exactly by that experience, and even more so with kids, right? You watch children and you see your life pass before your eyes, if not theirs, as they make decisions and you're like, no, I knew it. I also grew up on a cartoon that highlighted this kind of reality, Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Um, got a lot of my theology and philosophy from Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Uh, the Coyote is actually an innovative engineer if you watch him. Very thoughtful, looks like he's probably, you know, studied at MIT or something. And he's trying out all of his new gadgets, trying to kill this roadrunner so he can eat him. And every time, every time he goes after the roadrunner, you'll find that his, his tricks and his engineering and all of his planning and all of the blueprints that often pop up actually work out to his own demise. Uh, like the one where he lines up a boulder held by a, a small rock on a cliff and he's waiting for the roadrunner to come down and as soon as he removes this rock, he's expecting it to fall on the, the roadrunner. But when he moves it, it actually falls the opposite way that it's supposed to and lands on his head. And that's how it goes all the time for him. Well, this reminds me a lot of Saul's pursuit of David in 1 Samuel 18 to 19. It seems like all of his plans work out 
in the exact opposite way that they ought or that he intends. Saul, the king of Israel, has set himself up against God's anointed, David. And Saul's best laid plans go wrong at every turn, leaving him looking increasingly foolish and ultimately shameful. Now, our big idea this morning is this, that God laughs at rebels but shields his people. God laughs at rebels but shields his people. Now, we see this in a number of ways. We've got to follow the story to see this. But first, we ask a question, who will be king? And there are two answers that are given by two men that have a legitimate sort of claim to the throne in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. You know, in verses 1 to 5, as we, we begin this section, you'll notice that there's a real sense in which the two people might have thought, that you might have thought had the most to lose if David became king were Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan was heir apparent. Saul was the actual king. And you would think that they were the ones that had the most to lose if he actually took over the throne. But notice that there are two different responses by these two different men at the beginning of 1 Samuel 18. We find that Jonathan loves David and Saul fears him. Saul loves David and Jonathan fears him. First, notice that Jonathan loves David greatly in verses 1 to 16. So we look to 1 to 16. Jonathan loves David greatly. And look there again with me at at what it says in verses 1 to 5. Here's what it says. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now there's been a lot of speculation on the nature of David's love for Jonathan and Jonathan's love for David. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, but for now, I think it is interesting to note that Jonathan initiates signs of his love in a way that David receives, but he does not reciprocate. There is a unique kind of one-wayedness to the way that Jonathan is expressing his love to David here. Now, David Firth, the commentator, explains a very important dimension of this love that is on display here in these verses. He writes this, the reason for this one-way kind of love probably lies in the fact that the verb love in these accounts is not so much an emotion or expression of friendship as a commitment to David's political position. There was a real and deep friendship between them, but the political dimension is essential. See, here's what's fascinating. 1 Samuel 17 highlighted that Saul is late in his years. So there's a real sense in which Jonathan is on the cusp of becoming the king, and he seems to have more to lose than anyone as the heir apparent to the throne. Jonathan has his own resume of fighting valiantly for God. You'll remember that in chapter 14, he defeated Philistines and the power of God. He's got the pedigree as well. He is the son of Saul, the current king. And if anyone should have fought to eliminate David, it was Jonathan. But Jonathan understands something that his dad didn't. The, The throne of Israel was God's throne. And the people of Israel were God's people. 
And so Jonathan made a covenant with David, perhaps even walking between the pieces of a sacrificial animal in the way that it was custom, uh, promising that as they walked through those dead animals, they were inviting the same kind of future and death upon themselves if they did not keep the promise. Here, Jonathan's promise to support David in all things. And then, if that wasn't enough, he took off his regal robes, the robes that would have identified him. And he placed them on David freely, along with his armor and his bow and his belt. And can you imagine what it was like to watch the soon-to-be king place his regal clothes on this poor shepherd? See, David went out for Saul and was successful in all that he had placed him over. And he placed him over all of the men of war. And this thing, it was good in sight, in the sight of Saul and the people and Saul's servants. Jonathan happily submitted himself to God's Messiah. Jonathan loved God's Messiah because Jonathan loved God. Do you see it? Now, the Westminster's Confession, it asks a number of questions to help teach people theology. And question number one is this. What is the chief end of man? Have you all thought about that? What is my chief end as a human? It's a pretty good question if you're a human. And their answer is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, there's something incredibly liberating about valuing God's glory above your own. When you truly believe that God owes you nothing and every good thing that comes to you is a gift of God, whether it is the good gift of a throne or a job or a girlfriend or children, or your next breath, God's glory is the greatest good that we have to look forward to. And don't miss this. We are in a dangerous place spiritually when we become fanatics about anything above God's glory. Now, I told you again, I I learned a lot of uh, philosophy, theology from Wally Coyote and, and Roadrunner. There were actually nine simple rules that dictated everything that happened in that show. Nine rules of this cartoon. Uh, One of them was this. It's that the coyote, rule number three, the coyote could stop any time if he were not a fanatic. Repeat, a fanatic is one who redoubles his efforts when he has forgotten his aim, according to George Santayana. Have you ever experienced that? You've probably seen it in your children. You probably haven't seen it in yourself because, you know, we're too mature for that kind of thing. But the sort of thing where you get into an argument and you've forgotten the aim of winning the argument or the truth that you're fighting about, and you just want to win, right? And anybody that needs to die will die in order for you to win the battle. See, we're in a dangerous place when we become fanatics about anything above God's glory, any of his good gifts that begin to take supremacy over our good God who gives all of the good gifts becomes a dangerous place for us. The story of Jonathan's life isn't his love for David, though. It's the wonderful freedom that he enjoyed from the power of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which exposed him as a man after God's own heart who delighted in God even when it cost him everything. That's Jonathan. How uniquely single-eyed Jonathan's legacy stands in the Bible, even as he watches God choose David over Jonathan to be king. See, Jonathan shows himself to be nobler than his kingly father ever was. Jonathan looked more like a king on the day that he handed over his throne to David than Saul did on any one day of his 42 years of king of Israel. Jonathan wasn't merely all in on David. Jonathan was all in on God. 
He loved David because God loved David. But notice this. Second, Saul fears David greatly. Jonathan's response is one of, I love God and I love God's Messiah. But here's Saul's fear, his response. He fears David greatly. In verses 6 to 16, everything seemed to be going well for Saul and David. So long as David won victories for Saul. But notice there's a shift in how Saul sees David, looks at David in verses 6 to 9. This is what it says. Again, it says this. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women who came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You know, music can be a powerful thing. You ever gotten a song stuck in your head? Can't get it out? I'd love to stick one in your head for this afternoon, but I'm not going to. This is one of those songs that Saul wished that he could just get to stop playing, but It's going to continue to play in his ears throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. You'll hear it again in chapter 21 and 29. And this seems to be the moment that Saul first recognizes David as God's spirit-anointed king, his replacement. This man who is after God's own heart. Now the song was off to a really great start. I'm sure Saul was like thinking, this is pretty good. Saul has killed his thousands. I like this. He loved that. But why'd they have to follow it with, and David his ten thousands? See, the women didn't mean this as a slight. They were celebrating, but the more they sang and danced, the more that Saul's heart fell. You ever experienced that? Somebody receiving glory in your presence that you feel that you deserve, and all of a sudden you have that sinking feeling? See, comparison can cause your heart to fall if you are more concerned with your own glory than God's. Don't miss this. Left to ourselves and the flesh, we look way more like Saul and David than David and Jonathan in this story. Did you notice that? So often our hearts, they are not like Jonathan who is just willingly handing over the throne. Yes, Lord, if this is what you want, have it, take it from me. But instead, we're more like Saul that says, please, I need every bit of glory that I can keep for myself, every bit of joy. See, we wonder while we are sick with MS or an infection that we can't kick while other sinners, worse than us, get to walk around healthy, not fair. We get angry when someone's Facebook post gets more likes than ours does. We wonder why someone else's church has grown faster than ours. And why do less qualified people get the jobs that we want? Why does a girl I like like another guy? I'm way better looking. But catch this. Saul loved David, and even David's success, so long as David supported Saul's desires for power and affirmation. But as soon as the Messiah threatened his throne, he and his attention is fixed on getting rid of David. That's how a jealous heart works. It loses sight of the grandeur of God's glory. And a sovereign God who reigns in the infinite splendor of his majesty 
We lose sight of the greatness of a God who holds the hearts of the kings in his hands, according to Proverbs. See, when our God is, isn't our great king, we become tyrannical. We become bloodthirsty dictators clutching our little temporary thrones for dear life. But Proverbs 21.1 reminds us the king's heart is a, a, a stream of living waters, right? It's a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Now, the rest of 18 to 19 demonstrates just how foolish King Saul's heart looks as he clings to the throne of God. This throne that has been given to David. In fact, the rest of this story reveals a king who seeks to hunt, trap, and kill David, but repeatedly gets trapped in his own snare. See, Saul looks utterly foolish in his attempts to outwit God and his Messiah. In verse 10, we get just sort of a brief preview. We find there that the harmful spirit comes upon him again, just as it did earlier. And here, when the harmful spirit comes upon him, notice that Saul was already angry with David before this happens, before the harmful spirit comes upon him. And here we find that he is left to himself and and then empowered by the spirit to actually attack David. And we have a popular saying here. I'm sure you've heard me say it. You've heard others say it. Other pastors say it. It's that sin makes you stupid. That's true theology. Did you know that? Uh, That's personal reflection too, by the way. Sin makes us stupid. Sin is irrational by its very nature. It looks nothing like the wisdom of God. For example, you you see this played out. As David plays the harp for Saul to calm his heart, he hurls a a, a spear at David twice and misses. Now let me just ask you this. If you are looking to be a famed warrior... And, and you want to have a great name, you have to ask yourself, how does a trained warrior miss David at point-blank range twice? Like, it seems like utter foolishness, like a poor warrior. And David only needed one shot to hit Goliath. And David still thinks Saul's just having an episode and didn't take it personal. See, Saul also sends him later to fight and die. But even that, as he sends him to fight and die, results in the people loving David more and Saul fearing him more. So Saul standing in fear, is standing in fearful awe of David in verse 15. Do you see that? He sends him to die and yet he wins. And so now he's even more fearful of David. And not only that, he, he didn't want Israel and the women to sing and love him anymore. But there we find Israel and Judah loving David yet again in verse 16. His plans are working out quite the opposite of what he intends. But notice this, second, the subtle humor of Saul resisting God's Messiah. It just continues. It doesn't get better. You'll remember that Saul promised his daughter's hand in marriage in 1 Samuel 16. Anyone who kills this giant, I'll give you the hand of my daughter. Well, here in 1817, Saul offers David the hand of his oldest daughter, asking only that David fights for Saul to win the Lord's battles. In that order, by the way. You need to fight for me, and then, and then, of course, the Lord too. And in doing so, the text shows us what is going on in the heart of Saul. He says, let not my hand be against him, but let the Philistines be against him. In other words, he is going to offer his daughter to David if he'll go and fight for him, but the intent of his heart is that the Philistines will kill David so he doesn't have to. And David, of course, responds, he's not worthy, so Saul gives her hand to Adriel the Meholothite. Y'all know who that is? Me neither. Okay, so A, 
we notice Saul gives Michal as a snare in verses 17 to 30 of chapter 18. Saul gives Michal as a snare in verses 18, 17 to 30. So then, after the first daughter doesn't work, he approaches David with the second daughter, Michal. Now, he does this with the same evil intent that we, we just read. And you'll notice what he says in verses 20 to 21. Here's what it says. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, as she might be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. Now, Michal loves David, again, in the sense of being politically allied to him. Now, we'll see later in the story, it does not mean that she loves Yahweh, that she loves the Lord, but she loves David, and he is the Lord's anointed one. And she loves him even over her dad, Saul. So Saul doesn't look like here in this picture as he's handing her over as a, as a really good dad. This isn't the dad that goes to, you know, daughter-daddy dances. It's not that dad. Notice the way that he talks about his daughter. She is a snare for him. She is going to lead to his undoing. She will entrap him and ruin his life. I've never heard a dad say that about his daughter to a man who is coming to suit her. But Saul calls her a snare or a trap for David. Now, I think that snare here is important in in seeing the meaning of this text. I think it might actually have a double meaning. Now, the first way that that snare is is used here is is really obvious. It's the obvious sense of Michal is the Philistine snare on the front end, right? So he's saying that if you want to marry her, you have to fight Philistines. And so that's the snare. The Philistines will end up killing you so I don't have to deal with you anymore. You'll notice when Saul's servants approach David in private, he says in verse 23, I'm a poor man of no reputation. In other words, he he can't afford the dowry that it's going to cost to marry this woman. But Saul says, hey, it's fine. All you need is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Now, aren't you glad that we use diamonds these days? (laughs) Moving on. This is the first and obvious way that snare is used. Saul lays the trap. But catch how it backfires on him in verse 27. He shows up with twice as many as what was asked, 200, and therefore looks all the better for it. Now as a result, verses 28 to 30 say this, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Don't miss this. Saul understands David to be God's anointed king. He fears him. Fear leads to him trying to kill David, and he fails, and the failure results in greater love for David, greater esteem for David, and greater fear for Saul. That's what happens when we reject and resist God's Messiah. But second, notice how the story continues. McCall was not just a physical snare. I believe that she was intended as a spiritual snare. See, Saul may have also had a second long-term understanding of how McCall would be a snare as well. Commentator Robert Bergen writes this. He says, the term translated snare is a theologically significant one. 
used three times in the Torah to describe the dangers of idols and idol worshipers. So Saul may have also understood his daughter's idolatry as setting another trap for David in addition. Though she lined up politically and romantically with David, spiritually she was an idolater. Uh, Notice again here that Paul, I mean that Saul swears an oath to Jonathan not to kill David in 1 to 10. The narrative of the way that all of these plans work back on Saul just continues. So catch this. Saul tells Jonathan and his servants that he wants to kill David. But Jonathan reminds him of how happy David had made him when he killed Goliath. Do you remember that? How he saved us? And then he warns him of taking innocent blood. Well, in verse 6, it says this. It says that Saul swears another oath, saying this, As the Lord lives, he shall not be Put to death. Now, if you've been reading through 1 Samuel, you get the irony. There's subtle irony here. You'll remember that Saul swore that he would kill Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 for disobeying Saul's foolish oath to kill anyone who ate before nightfall. And Jonathan, tired from fighting all day, ate some honey, and he was supposed to die. Saul only relented of killing him when the people compelled him not to. So Jonathan's very presence proves that oaths don't mean much to Saul. So when he makes the oath not to kill David, we know the subtle humor behind it. Saul is not trustworthy. Saul will likely try to kill David. And lying is a fruit of being aligned with Satan, the father of lies, not being aligned with God's Messiah. Of course, that proves to be exactly the case in the very next verses, verses 8 to 10. He makes an oath, and then verses 8 to 10 We find that after David defeats more Philistines, he's back at Saul's playing the harp, and yet again, Saul loses his mind and tries to stick a spear in David yet again, and guess what? He misses. Well, not only that, we find the the irony develop even more as you look in verses 11 to 17. Notice that McCall uses her idols to rescue David. She uses her idols to rescue him. You'll remember that the snare can be used to describe idolatry, and Saul used a snare to describe his daughter's relationship to David. She and her idolatry would lead to David's downfall one way or another. But catch what happens in verses 11 to 17. Saul sends two men to his house, to David's house, to keep watch on David through the night. But McCall, the snare, rescues him by letting him down through a window in the middle of the night. And then in verse 13, she pulls a Ferris Bueller. I mean, that's anachronistic, but you know, she basically like pretends there's a body in the bed, so they think, oh, he's still asleep, we're fine. But it turns out that the thing that she sticks in his place is an image, which in the Hebrew is a word, teraphim, which is an idol of divination, a household god, a large one, that was placed where he was laying. So you'll remember that divination, it led to Saul losing his throne. He did not look to God, trust to God, worship God. He looked to divination and was judged for it. And here Saul builds another trap to kill David and the daughter and her idol are used to actually deliver David. Do you see it? The snare and the trap that he sets works out to the deliverance of David. One trap rescues David from another trap that Saul has set. Now, if Saul was lucid, he should have seen the tragic comedy that was his life. And he would have stopped and handed over his robe to David. But instead, he just keeps it up, and so the the comedy continues in verses 18 to 24. 
And this is where his shame comes to a full throttle. Saul takes off his robe. Saul takes off his robe. You'll remember that we began with Jonathan willingly taking off his robe and handing it to David. Well, here we find Saul unwillingly becoming naked. See, David runs into Samuel as he's climbing out the window and and running for safety. He runs to Samuel in Ramah, where he meets Samuel in this this, um, uh, company of prophets. And when Saul hears this, he sends messengers to take David. But when they see Samuel and the prophets prophesying the Spirit of God falls on these messengers of Saul, and they begin to prophesy, so much so that they, they sort of like are not able to finish their task. Saul heard about this, and so he said, well, that didn't work. I'll just do the same thing again and see if that works. And so he sent a second group, and the same thing happened. And so the third time, Saul says, well, I guess if you want to get something done right, you have to do it yourself. And so he himself goes. And on the way, the Spirit of God fell on him. And Saul himself started prophesying even before he arrived. And once a cell phone announced you have reached your destination, we find in verse 24, he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, here he is defying God. Here he is defying God's call to to hand his robes to David. And David, here we find that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he removes his own garments. Saul appears shameful and naked. God laughs at the kings who attempt to rebel against God and his anointed in Psalm 2. And that includes the king of Israel here. Don't miss this. Saul seeks to rebel against God and his anointed, and at every point he looks so foolish and powerless in his attempts to go against God's Messiah. I love what I heard H.B. Charles uh, recently say at a conference. He said that human rebellion is divine comedy. And that is exactly what we see throughout this text. But not only that, human rebellion isn't merely divine comedy. It is tragic comedy. Now you'll remember that a greater Messiah did come after David who was also rejected by men. And it seemed that the whole universe conspired against that great king, Jesus, who is the Christ. You'll remember that Judas was on the the tip of that spear as he was selling out Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. And we find that there are all kinds of places that Judas could have pointed and blamed others for his fall, for the fall of Jesus and for his turning Jesus over. He could have said that it was Satan that led to the demise of Jesus. He could have said it was himself. He could have said it was the Jews who paid him or the Roman officials or the whole world in a sense was responsible for the death of Jesus. But the disciples were looking back on the same event through their theological gospel lenses in Acts 4, 27 to 28. This is how they interpret it. The Christian disciples prayed to God and they said this, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do do you see it? The, the, The things that you think that Satan is in control of and the things that you think that these Israelites or these Jews are, are conspiring against Jesus, ultimately nothing comes upon God's anointed but what God allows and permits and predestines. 
See, God sent godless men to sacrifice the God-men on the cross where he satisfied his own wrath for sinners and made them sons if they would only repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is ground zero of the glory of God and the culmination of God's redemptive purposes and plans for humanity. That's why Paul says, if I boast in anything, I boast in Christ. Our lives should be aimed at exalting Christ and his glory. But catch this, the cross symbolizes God's authority and laughing not only at the plans of men, but Satan himself at the rejecting of his Messiah. Oh, the sweet irony of the cross, that Jesus became a curse for you and me. And that the death that Satan thought signaled victory signaled his ultimate defeat. That is exactly the way that our Father works in heaven. He laughs and scoffs at the plans of those who are against his anointed. If you're here this morning and if you're a non-Christian, let me just encourage you, let me urge you, not to think that you can work around God's anointed Son, his greater anointed Son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament says he is the only way to the Father, that there is no workaround. There is no excuse that we can give for ourselves as sinners before a holy and righteous God. We are all sinners in need of a great Savior, and that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only Messiah and the only one who is able to bring you to God. Only He can bring sinners before a holy God and then not perish. The only way to be on the side of God's Messiah, Jesus, is by putting your faith in Him and turning for living for your sins. But there's also a message here today for Christians. You know whose voice is noticeably absent in chapters 18 and 19? We hear a lot from Saul. Saul, who is adamantly against, hates God's anointed. We hear, we hear from McCall. McCall, who is actually acting on behalf of God's anointed because she, she loves him. She doesn't necessarily love God, but she loves him. We, we hear a lot from, from Jonathan. We see what Jonathan is doing a lot here in handing over his robes to David and even imploring for him, seeking rescue for him. But we don't hear David's voice. But in Psalm 59, we actually get a unique view into the heart of God and the heart of David. On the night, the soldier sat outside his house waiting to kill him. After Saul had killed him and just before he seeks to kill him again and again. Notice that in Psalm 59, David wasn't paralyzed by how bad his life was. It was, it was tough. Or how hard times were. They, they were tough. He wasn't cursing God, but instead of questioning God or doubting God, he called out to God and catch what he says. In verse 8, speaking of his enemies, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. Let them be trapped by their devices and their plans. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Salah. And on and on. You see what David says? David calls for the Lord of hosts to come and deliver him. And in verse 8, he says, God laughs at the traps that have been set for David. He laughs at them. 
He is God's anointed. He will succeed. He will achieve what God has set him up forth to do. They have sought to kill him, and God laughs at the foolishness and weakness of men opposing the all-wise and all-powerful God. The plans of man and even Satan himself will not thwart God's plans. God will let David look on his enemies in triumph. And notice that he calls the Lord, in verse 11, our shield. You know, there's a real sense when we're reading this text, we need to remember that David is very unique as God's Messiah. We are not all God's Messiah. God, his son, Jesus Christ, he will do all that he has been sent forth to do. He will accomplish all that he has come to do. But we are not Messiahs. He is the Messiah. We are the little ones who follow the Messiah. But the beauty of this is the Messiah is saying, here's what I want you to understand about the nature of you, you who follow the Messiah, those of you who follow the true king, God's king, King David. You need to know that God is your shield too by virtue of your relationship to me. Did you see what David said? He is our shield. He is our shield. He is our protector. He is for us. Now who is the R? Well, it's all of those aligned with God's Messiah. Do you see it? David faced Goliath with a mighty shield bearer walking before Goliath. David had not a shield. David won with one shot. And on that day, David didn't carry a shield in his hand because God was his shield, God himself. And that's what gave David confidence as others sought his life. In fact, as David runs for his life, he puts the nations on notice, God's coming. Did you catch that? Psalm 59 isn't just for Saul. He tells the nations, be ready, God's coming. Even the nation of Israel. And this same promise of protection and safety is true for the people of God. And I have two clarifications, applications as we close, as we think about God as our shield. The first is this, Jesus is the shield of our salvation. He is the shield of the salvation. He is the protector of those who have put their faith in him. John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus pictures himself as the good shepherd. You remember David was a shepherd? He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep to protect them at all costs. And he says this in verses 27 to 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. We are in the hand of Christ who is in the hand of the Father and there is no one who is going to snatch us out of the all-powerful hand of God. That's the assurance that John comes and gives Christians in the gospel. God will not lose any who are truly His. That's God's plan. Not to lose any. True believers make it to the end. Why? Because Jesus protects them. Isn't that a great promise? promise that we need to treasure in our hearts. But There's a second thing that we need to remember, a, a clarification. All things aren't good, but they all work for good. All things aren't good, but they work for good. Romans 8, 28. And we know this, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. What do you think all things means there? I looked up the Greek. I'll I'll give you the shortcut. It means all things. It's a technical term for all things. All things, good things, and, and here, I think especially, the notice is being put up, even bad things. Things that we don't understand. Things that we could not conceive of as being good in any possible way. Things that aren't good, 
in the end are worked out to be for the good of God's people. Do, do you catch that? Now here's why this is important. If you trust that God is your shield and you are told that God is your shield means that you will not go through hellfire. That's a lie from hell. You can love God and be shielded till the end for that final day when Jesus comes back and go through all kinds of horrific realities in this life. But the promise is that you are hidden in the hand of Christ for God. And there is a great day and a great inheritance that is not going to only make sense of what you have been through, but is going to show you that these things were so small in comparison to the weight of the glory that awaits. Do you hear that? So maybe this day you just need to be reminded that as you're going through difficult things, sickness, or you have someone that you love is about to die, and maybe it's today that you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You have a child that struggles with disabilities and you're thinking to yourself, this doesn't feel like the shield that I want. Well, let me just promise you this. The shield that you get is better than the shield that you want. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's a savior that reminds you from a cross on which he died that the worst things that you could possibly imagine will actually and can be and will finally be turned around for your good. Not because they're good in and of themselves, but because God is and because he is able. So this morning, be reminded that God is your great shield. The shield of David that gave him confidence as people were waiting for his life is the shield of your life in Christ. Let's pray.